0: Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Colossians, chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross." Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds, expressed in your evil actions, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. If indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard, this gospel has been proclaimed in all creation. Under heaven, and I, Paul, have become a servant of it. The word of the Lord.
1: Good morning, everyone. It's really good to be with all of you. My name is Eric, and I'm one of the Pastor Erics here at Trinity, and it's a, it's a joy it's a joy to be with you this morning. Um, we, we just started a brand new series in the book of Colossians, so we're calling it First. The, the book of Colossians is all about what life looks like when Jesus is first. Last week, there was a quote in your bulletin, and the other pastor, Eric, Pastor Chappelle, he actually read it uh, for our call to worship. And I want, I'm going to put it up because I want to begin by reading from this quote. is from one of my favorite authors, C.S. Lewis. Uh, J.R. Tolkien was already mentioned. Those are two of my favorite authors in the world. But Lewis, he wrote a collection of essays called God in the Dock. And this collection of essays was written shortly after World War II had ended. And in this essay called First and Second Things, he's reflecting on the aftermath of the war, lessons that were learned in the war. And he wrote an essay called First and Second Things, as he's he's thinking about the underlying causes of the breakdown in civilizations. And he says, so many of our problems are caused by the confusion of first things and second things. Here's what he wrote. You can't get second things by putting them first. You can get second things only by putting first things first, from which it would follow that the question, what things are first, is of concern, not only to philosophers, but to everyone. What things are first? Really, that's what the book of Colossians is all about. And what Lewis is saying is when we put secondary things first in our lives, not only do we miss out. On having the most important things in first place, he says, we also miss out on having all the secondary things in their proper place. We can't enjoy them as they're meant to be enjoyed. We miss out on those too. So what things are first? Something that everyone needs to answer. Colossians is Paul's argument that Jesus is the first thing that puts all the second things in their proper place. In verse 18, chapter one, we just read it. Paul says Jesus' purpose, Jesus' mission is that he would have first place in everything. Because of who Jesus is and what he's done, he is the first thing that puts all second things into their proper place. I have a few other slides. I wanna explain what does this look like? What does this mean? Let's get practical on this. And so I wanna walk through a few slides. Um, what happens when we put secondary things into first place? What can happen in our lives? Those are some of the main themes of Colossians. And we can move um, to the next slide. What happens when we put school first? School's a good thing, it's an important thing. Many of you are in school, or if we're not in school, what happens when we put success first? That's what we're pursuing. Again, not necessarily a bad thing, but what can happen when it's first, when it's what drives us and defines us? Well, maybe we can look through each of those other lists. Let's keep it up there. There it is. When, when success is driving us, when success in school is driving us, often our relationships can suffer, right? They can be neglected. Maybe our fitness, our health, we can overwork, we can be imbalanced, our faith, when good things Uh, are happening. When I feel like I'm succeeding, then I'm doing well in my faith. But when I'm not succeeding, then I feel despair in my faith, and I'm angry and resentful. And when success is what's driving us, finances um, or even school is what's driving us, and we say, I'm in school so I can be rich one day, then our finances, our money, they're more of a way that we measure success rather than a way that we can serve others. Let's try a different one. relationship. If we have a relationship, that's, that's first, the first thing in our, in our lives, if that's what's driving and defining us, or our marriage even. Good things, very good things. But how might they affect the other things in our lives? Well, how does it affect our faith often? Our relationship with God is centered around God. When are you going to provide for me that right person? Or when are you going to make my spouse right if there's issues in our marriage? Our personal well-being, depending on how our relationship is going, we're up and down even in the sense of our own personal well-being. in our work, our work can suffer if our relationship is off. Work can be a way that I'm proving myself to the other person. says, look what all, all the things that I'm doing for you so you can earn their approval and their love. Or friends and hobbies. We don't invest in other people. That one person bears the full weight of our relational needs when they're first. And they're the first thing. One more example. Approval and acceptance. If, if approval and acceptance of others is what's driving us, then in our work, we're not looking to serve other people, we're looking to gain their approval. And so when things are going well and we feel approved, it's great, but when we receive criticism, then we're crushed by it. Even it, it can affect our faith if approval is what's driving us. If, if that's the first thing, we wonder always, have I done enough to please God? Have I earned his approval? We're always living in a state of doubt and insecurity. It can affect even our our leisure, our hobbies. We don't do what we want to do. We do what other people think is cool, so they'll think we're cool and we'll be approved by them. And then our time for self can suffer because I'm always doing for others, so I'll be accepted and approved, not taking time for myself. These are just examples of what happens when things are out of order or disordered in our lives. Paul says the way to find order, the way to find the proper place of all these secondary things is to place Jesus as first place in everything. Now, in in Paul's culture, in Paul's time and in day, To say that Jesus is the first thing above all other things is a very bold claim, it's a very audacious claim, and it can feel like a very offensive claim to us. Because we say some of the things that they were saying in that culture as well. Jesus can be your first thing, but maybe He's not mine. We should all have our own right to choose what's first in our lives. But this passage that we just heard read, it's it's Paul's way of showing the Colossians, it's his way of showing us that Jesus isn't one among many first things to choose from. He he is the first thing. And in order to convince us that this is true, did you notice the genre of what we heard? It's reflected, you you could miss it, it's reflected in the way it's printed in the bulletin, or if you're reading it in your Bible, maybe you can see the way it flows. This is a hymn. This is a poem. Scholars, they're not sure whether this was a hymn that was sung in many churches, or maybe Paul wrote this hymn, or maybe he adapted this hymn, and he rewrote it in order to make this point, that Jesus is first of all. He wasn't writing an argument for it. He wasn't arguing against all these other first things in our lives. He wrote a song, he wrote a hymn, he wrote a poem to show us that we would want Jesus to be first in our lives. He wants to stir within us a song so that we would want this. Here's what will happen in your life, here's what will happen in the lives of others, here's what will happen in the whole world and everything when Jesus is first. He sings a song about it. We're going to walk through this passage looking at three points. Jesus in the beginning, Jesus and the end, and Jesus and now. So first, Jesus in the beginning. These questions, what do I put first in my life? Why should I give Jesus first place? Those are big, massive questions, as big as they get. Where do we start? Whenever you're starting a big project... Whenever you're writing a paper, if you're in school or if you still have to write papers, whenever I'm writing a sermon, often the hardest part is just staring at that blank piece of paper, <laughs> that, that blank computer screen. Like, Where do I start? How do I get started on this? In verses 15 through 18, Paul is saying, start with Jesus. Look at Jesus He's the first picture we should look at. He's also the first word we should read. What do I mean by that? Well, if we just start with a blank piece of paper and we ask the most basic questions of life, the big questions, we'd have to put two questions on that paper to begin. Maybe a few more, but these for sure. One would be, blank piece of paper, is there a God? If so, what is this God like? And number two, Might be. What does it mean to be a human being? What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be fully human and alive? Those two questions are closely related, right? If there's a God and He's a creator, then He's a designer, then He's the one who informs our answer to the question of what does it mean to be a human being? He would be the authority and guide on that question. And the flip side, if there isn't a God, then we would need to find our purpose and figure out what it means to be human apart from Him. But when you try to answer these big questions, there's a huge problem. Many would say this is an insurmountable problem. It's the most difficult part of answering these big, important questions, which is what? These answers are invisible to us. We can't just go out there and say, here's the answer. Look. Look over there. The answer is is self-evident. So if God is there... Why does He seem so hidden to us? Why doesn't He lay it out there for all of us to see? This is who I am. This is what I'm like. This is what it means to be a human being. Where is God and why is He invisible to us? If there's a grand purpose to human life, why is it so elusive? This is a part of the great conversation. Human beings have been asking these questions for all of human history. But it wouldn't it be so easy if there was a visible answer to these questions, if we could say, look, see, right there, there is the answer. In verse 15, it says there is a visible answer. It's Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. In verse 15, Paul is saying, Jesus is the answer to both those big questions at the same time. He is a perfect and complete picture of God, and he is the perfect. And complete picture of humanity. He is the image of the invisible God. Who is God? What is He like? Paul says, "Look to Jesus." In John chapter one, verse eighteen, in the Gospel of John, John wrote, "No one has seen God at any time. The one and only Son, who is Himself God and is at the Father's side, has revealed Him." When we're doubting, when we're struggling, when we have questions about Christianity. Here's our starting point. If there is a God, would I want him to be like Jesus? Paul says, look to Jesus. Look at his story. Look at how he treated people. Look at what he did. Look at his mission. He is God visible and in action. He's God with skin on for all to see. And to the question, what does it mean to be human? Paul says, look to Jesus. He is the one person who lived fully alive and fully human. And so we should ask, if we're struggling with some of the things that Jesus is asking us to do, would I want my life to be like Jesus' life? We just look to Jesus. Most compelling life in human history, a life of conviction and focus and passion, and yet grace and acceptance and welcome. He's the first picture we should look at. He's also the first word we should read. Throughout this whole text, Paul is showing us how Jesus fulfills every possible meaning, every possible definition of the very first word in the whole Bible, Genesis 1.1. In the English, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In Hebrew, it says, bereshit bara Elohim. Don't be impressed. That's the only Hebrew I can, I can say because I wrote it down here. Bereshit is a compound word, be and reshit. Be is just a preposition. Be could be translated by or through or to or from. Reshit could be translated head, beginning, first place, sum total. Paul says, Jesus, he's the firstborn over creation. Firstborn doesn't mean he was created. It's a title of rank. It's priority in rank and time, he says, because by him all things were created, and through him and to him all things were created. He's first place. He's head. He's beginning. He fulfills every possible nuance and meaning of the first word of the entire Bible. Jesus is always the first word. Nothing makes sense in the Bible. Nothing makes sense of our stories unless he's the first word that we read. Let me share some thoughts on application. To understand Christianity, to grow as a Christian, we have to make sure we have the right beginning. There's so many difficult things in Scripture, so many difficult things that I continue to struggle with, so many ways that my life is inconsistent with what I read in the Scriptures and what Jesus calls me to. And when we're struggling with that, we have to remember we don't start with sin. We don't start with how we're falling short. We don't start with ourselves and the fall of humanity and our brokenness. When we're talking to other people about the Christian faith, we don't say, let me me tell you about Jesus. First, you're a sinner. First, let me tell you what's wrong with you. That's actually not the right starting point. The right starting point is you were created by, through, and for Jesus. I was talking with uh, our other pastor, Eric, Pastor EC, this week about this passage, and I would say, here's a passage that we're going to be looking at. He just looked at me, and he smiled, and he said, oh, you have to accept Jesus as your creator. Have you accepted Jesus as your creator? And I'd never heard that before. But that's what this text is saying before we can even understand what it means to accept Jesus as our Savior and follow Him as our Lord and King, to accept Him as our Creator. This applies to our relationships, marriage, school, sexuality, politics, race, power, poverty, money. You can't understand the Christian ethical teaching, many of which rub us the wrong way. We can't submit to it, let alone live it out faithfully, unless you begin with Jesus as the first picture we should look at, and the first word, we should read. He's our creator who knows our humanity best, and he shows us what it looks like in action. Practically, when Paul wrote this letter to the church in Colossians, there were all kinds of practical and important things he wanted to talk to them about. He wanted to talk to them about uh, their marriages. He's going to get to that, about their work. He wanted to talk to them about their parenting, about their anger issues, about sexuality. He was going to get to all that later, but he said, before we get, out, get to all that, we need to zoom out and make sure we have the right starting point. We need to start at the beginning. As we apply this, it's important for us, when we're struggling, when we're trying to make sense of life, when we have inconsistencies, to zoom out to regularly zoom out, and to remember, I'm not first, I don't begin with me. There's a movie called Tree of Life, I don't know if you've seen the movie Tree of Life, it came out a number of years ago. It's one of these movies that you either think is awesome or you think it's weird and you hate it. And I'm on the awesome side, I was watching it with my wife Amelia and my brother and his wife. And after the first 20 minutes, I was the only one left watching it. <laughs> so you'll love it or hate it if you, if you go check it out. But at the very beginning of the movie, there's a voice. And the voice says, where are you, Lord? Answer me. And then the next scene, it's the scene that it's just so, it's a crazy scene. It starts essentially with the Big Bang, okay, this this movie is coming from a theistic evolutionary standpoint. So it starts with the big bang. And then for 16 minutes it shows the creation of the cosmos, shots of galaxies. You know, that's like 10 or 12 minutes. You're just seeing you're hearing music and you're hearing the shots of space and then all of a sudden things happen on this planet and you're watching a dinosaur and it's so random and then the dinosaur dies and then it just keeps going on forward until you get to the scene of the ocean, and you get to this family living in 1950s Texas and into their lives. I love that scene. (laughs) Because it says, where do I begin? I begin by zooming out and realizing Jesus is Lord. He's the beginning. Everything changes when I look at things through that perspective. It's radically humbling because it means that Jesus is saying to us, you're not first, I'm first. Fulfillment will never come when we live our lives by, through, and for ourselves. But it's radically freeing too because if we hear what Jesus is saying to us here, he's saying, I made you. You were created by me, through me, and for me. I hold you together every day, every second. I know you. I know how your life is made to work. Stop trying to be the center of the universe, the Lord of your life. That's my job. Be radically free. Jesus is the beginning. He's also the end. And What do I mean by the end? There's at least two meanings of the word end. End is like the end of a story, the finish, the conclusion of a story. It's also end can mean the goal or the purpose of something. Resurrection, Paul says in this text, shows us both, both the finish line and the purpose for Jesus and the finish line and the purpose for us. What is Jesus' end? If you look at the text again, everything that Paul says about Jesus as creator is paralleled here with what he says about Jesus as restorer, as resurrected. He is at the beginning of all things and he is the end of all things. Look at the parallels with me. He says, Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. And then in verse 18, he says, he's the firstborn from the dead. In 16 and in 17, he says, everything was created in, through, and to him or for him. In verses 18 through 20, it says that he has reconciled everything to him so that he might have first place in everything and through him God Reconcile all things to himself. It's the same exact prepositions. He's the firstborn of creation, in, through, and for him all things were created. He's the firstborn from the dead. He's the resurrected one, and in, and through, and for him will all things be restored. His resurrection from the dead is the beginning of the end of sin, and death, and sorrow, and evil. So, Jesus' story begins before time, and with creation, with him in first place, And it ends with a full reconciliation of all things that he created to himself. Paul here is showing us Jesus' end and purpose for us and the world. His mission, his goal, his purpose for us. And what we see here is that it's not an extraction mission that Jesus has. It's more like an invasion mission. An extraction, if you've seen the movie Black Hawk Down, and these other movies where in Black Hawk Down they're going into Somalia and they're rescuing these prisoners of war. These people, they have to get out of a dangerous situation and take them out and bring them back to safety. An invasion, on the other hand, is you invade a country in order to take it over, to reclaim it, to take it as your own. What Paul's saying here is that Jesus has invaded the world with the same power he used to create all things in order to reclaim all things in his resurrection Jesus when he saves us he doesn't extract us out of the world but he reclaims us he reclaims all the life he intended and designed us to live and that has many implications for what our end is what is our end what is the chief end of man is this Another way we could say it, verse 18 answers that question for us. The chief end of man is that we might give Jesus first place in everything. In the text, it says that He might come to have first place in everything. At first, we might think, does that indicate the possibility that He might not have first place in everything? But it's not saying that at all. It's like saying if all of us went to a pool, and it was a swim meet, and we're all lined up, and you could be an amazing swimmer, and then Michael Phelps, he steps up onto the uh, the little starting line next to you, and you're like, oh, Michael Phelps. This is great. but Michael Phelps, what are you doing here? What are you doing at this swim meet? And he might say, well, I've come that I might have first place in everything. <laughs> and you're like... Okay, he's going to get it. There's no one that's going to challenge him. That's what Paul is saying here. Jesus' end, that he might have first place in, in everything, is the end when he invades our life, it's the end of our lives. He will. It's not might. When we believe in Jesus and come to him in faith, he will take first place over everything in our lives. And that's, what's, that's what Paul is saying here. I want you to understand what happens when you come to faith in Jesus. Jesus is saying, I'm going to take first place in everything in your life, and I'm starting now. This is my end goal for you. And nothing you can do can stop me. And that's a radical thing because as human beings, we love to be in first place. I was reading this article in the New York Times this week, and it was about this controversy that's been raging for like 10 years or more years that's uh, created an investigation, and they finally feel like they've, they've resolved this controversy. And the controversy is, who was the first person to get to one million points in Donkey Kong? There's these two guys, Billy Mitchell and Steve Wiebe. They've been fighting about this for over 10 years. And there's a story about it in the New York Times. So the answer, they say, is that Steve is the first to 1 million points and not Billy. But can you imagine investing 10 years of your life in order that your name, you know, like when a video game comes up in the arcade, and it's like, there's my initials, first place. As human beings, that's just one silly illustration of how much we're committed to retaining first place in our lives. I'm going to have first place, and I'll choose what goes first for me. Paul is saying, here's what's going on in your life. Jesus is dethroning you. Jesus will be first in your relationships and in your friendships. Jesus will be first in your marriage. Jesus first in your politics. Jesus first in your neighborhood. Jesus first in your money, in your sexuality, in your leisure, in your longing for significance and purpose and love and meaning. As this happens, as Jesus takes first place in all these areas of our lives, we become more truly and fully human. He's not extracting us out. He's bringing life to us as it was meant to be lived. He's properly reordering our lives so we might have the second things as we were made to enjoy and use the second things. Paul also says this is our individual purpose, but this is the purpose corporately of the church, that the goal of the church, the mission of the church is to learn more and more what does it mean to give Jesus first place in everything and to imperfectly, but really demonstrate that to the world. The mission of the church is to show the world what it looks like to live with Jesus in first place in everything. Jesus' end shows us our end, our goal and purpose. Jesus' finish line also shows us our finish line. By faith in Jesus, the story ends, your story ends with resurrection and all things restored. Your full humanity restored, no more sorrow, no more sighing, no more death, no more sin, no more sadness. There's a story I read this week A Pastor had the strangest funeral request. Uh, Somebody had passed away in his congregation, and she said, I have one request that when I'm lying in the casket, I want to be holding a fork. So she was there holding the fork. And he said while he was giving, um, leading the service and giving the eulogy, he said, you're probably wondering why Meryl has this fork in her hand as she's laying there on the casket. And he said, here's what she wanted me to share with you. She said, when I was a little girl, my grandmother would take me to church and after the service there would be snacks. Often when I'd finish my plate, I would go to throw away my fork and plate, but sometimes my grandma would stop me and say, keep your fork because the best desserts are still to come. So she said, I wanted to be buried with a fork because I believe just as my grandma told me, the best is still yet to come. The best is still yet to come. Jesus will be first. Our full humanity will be restored. We will glorify and enjoy God forever. That's where Jesus is taking us. Jesus is the beginning and the end. In a conversation I was having this week with one of our elders, Eddie, I already told him I was gonna share with you about this conversation. We were catching up, we were talking about life, and I was asking him about his work as an attorney, and uh, how he handles, like, the stress and the really difficult cases. And then he said to me, here's what I've learned. I'm not in control, and this is not the end. And when he said that, I was like, dude, you just preached my whole sermon for me. I'm not in control, and this is not the end. Because Jesus is the beginning, and Jesus is the end. Do you see what Jesus is saying to us here? He's saying, you don't have to fix everything, not even yourself. You can't. I am fixing everything. I am taking first place in everything, so everything is ordered rightly. I will take first place in everything. That's how the story ends. So now, learn to give me first place in your life now, in everything. Jesus is the beginning and Jesus is the end. Lastly, Let's talk about Jesus and now. Paul moves from the song and the hymn about Jesus. He shows how this becomes more and more a part of our lives in verses 21, 22, 23. In verses 21 and 22, he says, You were this. And then in verse 22, he says, But now this. I want to look at the were and the now. Jesus and the now. Here is where Paul's addressing this reality. You may be asking this, you may be feeling this. But my life right now is not reconciled in all things to Jesus. He doesn't have first place in my my life or in the world. I'm still very far from that. The world seems so very far from being restored, from being aligned to Jesus' purposes. Why? Why are we so far from that? Why is it so hard for us to experience that? Paul says in verse 21, it's because of our alienation. He says it's because of our alienation and our hostility. Look at verse 21 with me. I want you to notice the logic here. It's important. He it says, once you were alienated and hostile in your minds, expressed in your evil actions. You see what he's saying here? He's saying the problem isn't, like we often think about it, the bad things you're doing. He says there's, there's a root where those actions come from. It's not the, the bad things we do are an expression of an inner alienation and hostility. The solution then is not to stop and do the right thing, to do more good things than bad things. That's not the message of Christianity. The alienation and the hostility needs to be dealt with. Only then will our actions change. Paul says you were alienated. The sense of alienation, what does it mean to be an Alien mean to be an alien in in the world, in our earth, in in, in our lives. Alienation is a sense of not belonging, of being separated, of being estranged. It's that feeling of being on the outside, of missing out on something on the inside, always feeling on the outside of it. If you've ever gone on a long-term visit to another country, or if you've come here from another country, you know what that feeling and that experience of alienation is like. The language, the customs, and the culture, the food, how people act, and the jokes they tell. You always feel like you're on the outside of what's going on on the inside. Paul says that's what it's like to be a human being in the now. I feel like we're alienated. There's something on the inside that we're missing out on. I heard a powerful illustration of this, uh, it was about a seashell. You get a a, a seashell, one of the big ones, you you take it with you, take it home, and you listen to it, and you hear the roaring of the waves, and you hear the sound of the ocean, and that that echo of the ocean, the sound of the waves, that, that won't go away unless that shell is placed back into the ocean, it's filled up with the actual ocean itself. Thought that was a very powerful illustration of our own alienation. That we are restless people, we are unfulfilled, we're looking to fill our void. Paul says that is what it means to be alienated until you are full in Jesus. So we're alienated, but we're also hostile in mind. Paul's talking about living with our mindset against putting Jesus in first place. And the way that it goes is the more that we we fight against putting Jesus in first place, the more we feel alienated and estranged from our humanity. The more we experience a sense of estrangement, the more we fight against it. And the more estranged we feel from ourselves, the more hostile we can feel towards other people and toward God. Paul is saying that sense of emptiness that we feel, that sense of missing out, that's the echo. It's the echo of our beginning and our end. He says stop fighting against that alienation. Stop trying to fill it with things that can't fill it, that we're never meant to. Only Jesus can end the alienation. He can end our hostility and change our actions. How? How does he do it? Paul says it's about reconciliation. Reconciliation on the cross. Imagine this. I grew up in Florida, in Jacksonville, Florida, so I was a total alien to California when I moved here in 1999. And imagine if every time I was getting into a conversation with a Californian, I'd say, what's up with this place? There's traffic everywhere. People keep driving everywhere. The traffic is terrible, and it's horrible. There's smog still here. Come on, smog? There's no southern hospitality. People are just so busy. They're in a hurry. Their neighbors don't talk to each other. What is wrong with Southern California? You call that barbecue? That is not barbecue. You don't have any real barbecue here. There's not any trees here. The Lakers, yeah, they're never going to be any good again. The Dodgers will never win a World Series. You guys are getting mad at me, right? That's the point. At a certain point, you get violent. You say, then why don't you just leave? Or if you don't leave, I am going to kick you out of here because you don't belong here. And if it went even further than that, imagine if I'm saying, I don't believe in the laws of California. I'm going to break all the laws of California. These are dumb laws. They have a horrible government here. I'm working against every way that Southern California works. Or if I came into your house. Same thing. I start criticizing all the decorations. I say, that that picture, uh, that's horrible. It shouldn't even be there. Why do you have that couch? That's ridiculous. It's really messy over there. Yeah, oh, this is a non-shoes house? Well, I always wear my shoes in a house. (laughs) And you would say, we're going to get violent here. (laughs) You need to get out of my house. Colossians says, we're in Jesus' house. We are in Jesus' country. We are living hostile to his laws, to the customs, to the way that things were created to work in Jesus' house and country. We're the guests. We're the strangers. He's the owner. He's the king. And at root, sin is acting like we are Lord over what is rightfully his. And that's where all the disorder and disintegration comes from in our lives. We deserve to be cast out. We deserve to be thrown out. We deserve to be the recipients of a violent tossing out of Jesus' rightful home. But the gospel is, though we substitute ourselves for God, God in Jesus substitutes himself for us. Jesus says, I will be alienated. I will be cast out so that you can come in. I will experience the hostility that you deserve for your hostility towards me. Jesus said, he who would want to be first of all must become the slave of all and the last of all. Isn't that what he did? Jesus, the beginning, the first of all, he became the lowest and the last. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, God let himself be pushed out of the world on the cross. Jesus said, I will be pushed out. I will be treated like an enemy so that we would come back, so that we could come back and be treated like friends. So in the now, in the now, when we feel alienated, when we feel like we're missing out, when we feel like our lives are out of order... Paul says, don't don't change your actions first. Don't look to that. He says, lay down your weapons. Stop fighting and come home. At the cross, Jesus says, here's how much I want you to come back, how deeply I want you to be my friend and to restore your full humanity to you. It's his bloodshed and his physical body, broken." In death to bring us back. So what do we do now? Last last point here. What do we do now when we feel like we're missing out, we're resisting Jesus, our actions are not lining up? Paul says, here's what you do. Just stand still. Stand still in the gospel. My wife and I, we have four boys. And there are many moments in my life where I ask the question, why, Lord, did you give us four boys? Sometimes it's out of desperation, but sometimes I'm just really curious. Like, could have been two and two or three and one. Like, why four boys? And maybe one of the answers is that I might have some tiny little bit of expertise on what, what a boy is, how a boy works, or what makes them tick. And one thing that I do know for sure is the answer to this question, what's the hardest thing for a little boy to do? Stand still. That is the most impossible thing for a little boy to do. In my experience, in my own heart and life, in my experience as a pastor, I think I have a little tiny bit of expertise to this question also. What is, it, what is the hardest thing for the human heart to do? Quite possibly, same answer. Stand still. We're restless souls. We think if we keep moving, keep active, keep looking to fill ourselves with other things, that'll quench the alienation. The gospel says, you don't need something else. We are reconciled. One day we'll be fully holy and blameless and without reproach. Jesus is taking us there. He says, I created you. I'm in charge. I will raise you and I will reclaim you, all of you. I have reconciled you with my life and my death. You will one day fully be all I made you to be. Stand in that. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the starting point. And I confess that often that's where everything goes wrong in my life when I become the starting point. And I know that plays out for for many of us and for all of us. We struggle to give you first place in one thing, let alone everything. And so I pray this morning as we are hearing your heart for us, to reconcile us, that you have done everything already. and One day we will be fully enjoying the benefits of your reconciling work for us. I pray for all of us, maybe there's one thing you're putting on our heart, one area of our life where we're resisting. Help us lay our weapons down and help us run to you, knowing that you know what's best, you want want what's best, and only by your power, your resurrecting power, can we enjoy life, can we live life as we were meant to, for your glory and for our joy in you. Work it deeply into our souls and help us stand in that. In your name we pray, amen.